This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Mike and Scott, and this is a podcast extra from The Pulse. A lot of us go on different diets from time to time, eating less carbs, more veggies, no sugar. But physician Chris Van Tulliken tried something radical for a month. I was eating junky breakfast cereals. Sometimes I'd have like flavored yogurt. A mid-morning snack would be a, a health bar. Microwave lasagna for lunch, a frozen pizza for dinner. Chris did this as part of a research project. He's been investigating the health impact of ultra-processed foods. I gained a lot of weight. I gained so much weight that if I had continued the diet, I would have doubled my body weight in a year. The second thing is we did some brain scanning. We saw huge changes in the connectivity between the habit-forming centers at the back of the brain and the addiction reward centers in the middle. What this food is doing to children who grow up on it from birth through their all their development, we have no idea. But we saw very significant changes in connectivity. He also noticed changes in his mood. He felt anxious and irritated. He wasn't sleeping well. It also affected his metabolism. What we saw was that at the at the end of the diet, when I was fed a standard meal, my hormonal response to that meal was completely different to at the beginning of the diet. So my hunger hormones remained sky high at the end of a very big meal. Chris writes about this experience in his new book, Ultra-Processed People, the science behind food that isn't food. Chris is an associate professor at University College London and also a broadcaster for the BBC. What is ultra-processed food? There's a very long formal definition. It's probably the longest formal scientific definition I have ever encountered in my scientific career. But it boils down to it's packaged food that contains at least one ingredient that you don't typically find in a domestic kitchen. And this is just a way of describing American industrially processed food. So we could also say that if a food has a health claim on the package, it's almost certain to be ultra processed. If it says low fat, supports your immune system, high in fiber, low in sodium, any of you know, good for weight loss, all of that stuff is ultra processed. Um, we could also define it as food made by transnational food corporations. Most of the food that the big companies that feed us make is ultra processed. So the definition came out of this observation in Brazil, where some scientists noticed that there's this very quick transition from a traditional rice and beans diet to an American diet. Um, and I say American, I'm conscious I'm talking to an American audience. I don't say this to stigmatize America or Americans, but this is the export of, of, of kind of this U.S. industrial food. And it caused huge health problems. So they wrote a definition to try and describe these products that were driving diet-related disease. And what is it about these foods that is the main concern? Is it the processing itself? Is it the shelf life? Is it the ingredients we don't know what they are? What is the it factor? That's an amazingly sort of nuanced question. So The first thing is, we don't need to know how something causes harm 
to be sure that it does. Mm -hmm. So with tobacco products and cancer, we were very sure that cigarettes caused lung cancer long before we had any idea how they did it or what it was about them that did it. In the case of ultra-processed food, we now have over a thousand peer-reviewed studies in, in great journals linking them to negative health outcomes. And they're associated with uh, most of the researchers, lots of the researchers focused on weight gain and obesity, but they're also strongly associated in a dose-dependent way with cardiovascular disease, strokes and heart attacks, with cancers, all cancers, but specifically breast and bowel, with metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes, with anxiety, depression, dementia, inflammatory diseases like Crohn's disease, and early death from all causes. So the epidemiology is very robust and has come out of great centers. There's a great team at Harvard. There's a team at the Medical Research Council unit in, in Cambridge. There is my team at UCL. There's another team at Imperial. So these are really good. These are some of the best epidemiologists in the world doing this. When it comes to mechanism, obviously what everyone wants to know is, yeah, but how is it doing it? Mm -hmm. And there's a laundry list of about five or six kind of core ways that we think the food is driving harm. And at the top of that list is weight gain. This is one of the best studied aspects of this food, is it's incredibly soft. So if you go and eat a, a burger from a, a fast food joint or you eat a packet of uh, crunchy you know, chips or frozen microwave pizza or lasagna or a breakfast cereal, the texture is provides no resistance. There's lots of different textures. It might feel crunchy or um, rough or smooth or oily, but really it, it is these are calories it's very, very quick to consume. It's also very energy dense because there's no water in it. So if you get a, even if you get a piece of steak that's really fatty, a lovely marbled bit of ribeye, it's actually got low calorie density because so much of real food, whether it's apples or steak or avocado or whatever, is full of water. So the food is energy dense because it's dry and it's dry because that preserves shelf life and it's soft. So you consume calories quicker than your body is able to release hormonal and, and neural signals that say, you know what, I'm done, I can stop eating. So one of the, the main things about this food is it has been engineered to get around your body's evolved mechanisms that say, I'm done, I can stop now. And so lots of people listening are going to have this experience with lots of these foods where you know you're finished, you sort of feel full or even maybe a bit ill, and yet you seem to keep eating. And we, and we think that, I mean, there's a, there's a theory that the particle size in some of the, the cookies or the cakes or the pizzas or the breads is so small that the foods are m mostly absorbed before they get to the part of your small intestine where the fullness signal comes from. So that, that's an example of a mechanism. Now, we have data on that going back to the 1990s. That's incredibly robust. One of the arguments the food industry come back with is they say, oh, look, look, we'll fix this. If the food's too soft, we'll make it chewier. If the food's too energy dense, we'll take out some of the energy and replace it with non-nutritive sweeteners. The problem is that the, the thing underlying all the problems is the purpose of this food. And this may sound a little bit woolly, but I am a molecular biologist and, and this is incredibly uh, important to understand. The purpose of this food is to generate money for the companies that make it, for the owners of the companies that make it. And so everything about this food is dialed up so that you eat as much of it as often as is humanly possible. And so by altering all the different aspects of the food, whether it's the texture, the flavor enhancers, the taste profile, 
the salt fat sugar ratios, the softness, the packaging, the fonts, the monkey on the box, all of it has been engineered to appeal to you as young as possible and to get you to eat as much as possible. When I was talking to Chris, I brought some snacks into the studio because I wanted to ask him about them. For example, a popular energy bar, which is marketed as healthy. There is a person on the front who is like climbing a mountain. Yeah. And, you know. They're, they're like slim and athletic and healthy yes, looking. Yes, yes. Yeah. And on the back, I would actually need magnifying glasses to really read this but it's yes, like yes I can no longer read I'm 45 no. and reading ingredients lists is now basically beyond impossible me. yeah so yeah. it has 260 calories which is quite uh -huh. a bit and it has rolled oats organic brown rice syrup soy rice crisps and then rice flour and then roasted soybeans organic soy flour it just goes on and on uh -huh. But I know that if I were to eat this bar, 260 calories right now, I would be hungry again half an hour later. Yes. I mean, so there are several things you've identified. Firstly, the calories are important. So if you eat more calories than you burn, you will gain weight. Mm -hmm. This food has addictive properties. So the, the calorie labeling is, a, is kind of the long grass because no one eats the number of calories on the packs. And as you say, we'll get hungry, we'll eat another one. So when it comes to that list of ingredients, you, you stopped midway. You highlighted a couple of things though. Ultra-processed food is really made from four plants, maybe, maybe five plants, and sometimes we put in three animals. So we eat rice, wheat, corn, soy, and palm for the oil. Sometimes there's a bit of sunflower oil, but there's, there's, there's seed oils. And then there's pigs, cows, and chickens. Mm -hmm. And that's the basic ingredients. Now, those things are destroyed down to their almost kind of molecular level. So you, you, you listed several different soy products, wheat flour and some rice flour, mm -hmm. some rice syrup. We're just growing these commodity crops at enormous scale. A lot of it is, it, it is for bioethanol, um, it's, it's for, for driving cars with or feeding cows. And kind of the waste products of that monoculture crop industry, the commodity crop industry, is used to make our food. So if you keep, so it, all ultra-processed food, you start with that kind of wheat, rice, soy, corn list then they'll, I bet there'll be an emulsifier. Is there some lecithin or a, mm -hmm. a diglycerides or something? Yep. <laughs> yeah, and then there may be, a, is there maltodextrin, a stabilizer? There'll be some flavoring. And what you start to realize when you engage with this food is it's all the same. Whether you're eating a, a pizza or your protein climbing energy bar or a frozen meal or a pack of chips, it's all the same basic ingredients. It's commodity crops broken down into carbs, fats, and protein, and then emulsified, flavored, textured, and then they they press them out into a different shape and bake them or fry them or whatever. But it's 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 all the same. It's funny because now I'm looking at something that kind of looks like popcorn, but it's not popcorn. And it's like puffs, you know, cheese puffs. And Yeah, you can puff anything. Yes. And like you're saying, the ingredients are cornmeal, rice flour, sunflower oil, and or canola oil. And it goes yeah. on and on. So it's exactly yeah. what you're saying. It's basically the same thing as the energy bar, but it looks like popcorn. And it is all equally sweet, sweet, salt, fat, and sugar. It's, it's all got the same profile of taste. So... 
one of the hacks that the companies use is if you make if you if you mix sweet and salt, you can add much more of both. Now, if you add some sourness, you can add even even more. So you generally have sour, which is acid in the form of tomatoes or vinegar. You generally have sugar, which they disguise. So like there was brown rice syrup, which sounds healthy. It's, it is chemically, I suspect, indistinguishable from table sugar or high fructose corn syrup in terms of its effect on the body. And if so, if you mix, and, and good chefs do this, but if you mix salt, sugar, and acid, you can really get a wonderful taste in the mouth. But you could, it, those combinations allow you to smuggle much more sugar and fat past the tongue than if you didn't add the salt and the acid. So a lot of the time what the companies are doing is they're fiddling with the ratios of tastes and nutrients to create these very addictive profiles. Chris Van Tulliken is a physician and associate professor at University College London. His new book is called Ultra Processed People, the science behind food that isn't food. I'm Mike and Scott. This is a podcast extra from The Pulse. When we come back, we'll hear why we can't stop eating this stuff. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares Betterment's philosophy on investing. No matter the amount of money you have, it's always good to be invested. It's always good to start early. It's always good to save. And the power of being consistent in your habits is really the path to long-term wealth. Get started at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. This is a podcast extra from The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about ultra-processed foods with physician Chris Van Tulliken. His new book is called Ultra-Processed People, The Science Behind Food That Isn't Food. I wanted to ask you about the addictive properties of this food. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, when I eat salt and vinegar chips... Mm. After about 10 of them, I'm done. Like, I'm kind of already grossed out. Like, my mouth starts to suffer from all the, the sourness of it. You're literally developing mouth ulcers while you eat. Yes. So so let me guess. So you you have 10 chips, then you gently fold the top of the pack over, you set it to one side, and you stop eating. I, I do the first part. I fold the top over, I put it aside, and then two minutes later, I yes, I unfold it. And then I might put it somewhere else in the drawer, and then I go into the drawer and I get them back out. And it's almost like, it's like a demon. You have to eat it until it's gone, and then you're like, oh, thank God. 
<laughs> so there, there's been some... There was a really wonderful paper published two weeks ago in the British Medical Journal by Ashley Gearhart and, and some other very brilliant co-authors saying, drawing together lots of the evidence that these products are addictive. And some skeptics, mainly funded by the food industry, said, this is ridiculous. You can't compare these everyday food products like breads and cookies to heroin, cocaine and tobacco and alcohol. We have really good research from all kinds of different dimensions that shows that that comparison is valid. So let's first of all look at what is the definition of addiction. It is the repeated use of a substance or a behavior despite knowledge of the harms that it's doing to you, either psychological or physical, and despite repeated attempts to quit. Now, I would suggest that half the audience listening to me speak to this now will have the experience that they will be living with excess weight. They may be living with metabolic disease or other diet-related disease. They will want to lose weight and become healthy, and they will be unable to stop eating the food that they know is driving the problem. It may be as many as as 50% or more of people who try ultra-processed food in the current environment are unable to stop using it. So it's it's really valid. And even if you are not, quote, addicted... It's the constant temptation where, you know, if I'm eating a cookie, I immediately start to think, I want another cookie, while the first cookie is still not even eaten in my mouth. You know, I'm already thinking like, wow, where's the next one coming from? That's such a fascinating observation because some of the most important neuroscience shows that wanting and liking are two completely different bits of your brain, or they're, they're they're close, but they're, they're not the same circuits. And you are describing the addiction emotion, which is wanting. Um, and even as you are slightly disgusted by the biscuit you are currently <laughs> chewing, you are still like, where's the pack? I got to get the next one out. Yeah. I mean, this is, you're, you're giving this very beautiful explanation of, of addiction. And addiction's a scale. So I would guess that you actually are not addicted to these salt and vinegar crisps, say, in the sense of you're eating them all day, every day and destroying your life. (laughs) But we could imagine a world in which actually, if you were a more vulnerable person um, living in a different environment, you might be really struggling with this food. So it's, it's a spectrum and we're protected. The other thing to say is people with food addiction, their vulnerabilities are exactly the same as people who who live with gambling, alcohol or tobacco addiction as well. You know, there's the same genetic vulnerabilities and the same social vulnerabilities. And what do we know in terms of how food companies research what makes a product, if we don't want to call it addictive, super appealing to our psyche? So I spent a lot of my time writing the book, speaking to people in the food industry, all of whom I would like to say were absolutely lovely, gave me a huge amount of their time. Many of them would only speak off the record. But they all said the same thing about the way that food is developed, that there are labs of chefs and scientists. They're not doing anything. Some of it's a bit secret, but broadly, it's they're just fiddling around with stuff that you could fiddle with a bit in your kitchen. Um, They've got some slightly more sophisticated techniques available to them. But they test the food on focus groups. So you take your standard breakfast cereal. I mean, you you and I, you know, my kids can eat the same breakfast cereals that I did when I was a child. But every year since I was eating it, the companies have taken the box of of chocolate-covered rice puffs and they have just tweaked a few of the little dials on it. They've gone, well, maybe the maybe it's a little too sweet. Maybe it needs more salt or maybe it's too crunchy. Does it, maybe it doesn't melt in the milk or the, the color's not quite right or the font on the box. And so they put it through the focus group and if the focus group eats box formulation of chocolate-covered 
rice puffs a bit quicker. If they eat formulation A quicker than formulation B, it's A that goes on the shelf. And every year, every dial on every product is tweaked. So that, you know, when I look at my six-year-old, if we have the chocolate-covered rice puffs in the in the kitchen, she can eat four or five adult portions for breakfast. <laughs> and That's... it's not normal. And if you deprive her on it of it, she will scream and shout and you know we destroyed the morning so the the simple thing is you know you flush the cigarettes down the toilet you don't have your cocaine in the house and you don't have your chocolate covered cereal i mean the companies lean into this so in the uk we have we have a cereal called crave and it's little chocolate filled envelopes of you know carbohydrate i mean it's it's and then we have slogans like once you pop you can't stop i mean the companies know that they are making addictive products. And we will eventually see lawsuits. So it's proving very complicated to sue the food industry. But it's going to happen because diet-related disease has overtaken tobacco as the leading cause of early death globally. And people are really sick of it. I mean, I think in the States, there is a real movement where people feel gaslit by the food industry. They know they're addicted and they are they are getting a bit exhausted of of this sort of multi generational problem. And I'm looking again at these uh, these popcorn puffs here, and on it it says baked, not fried, made mm. with made with real cheese, no artificial ingredients. Which is just you know there are all these things at the top that that are designed to make you feel good. Like this will actually make you healthy. I mean, it, you're, it conforms to my rule, which is that almost any food with a health claim will be uh, engineered to be ultra-processed. And there's a good reason for that, that ultra-processed food is food that has intellectual property attached to it. So no one can really make any money out of milk or beef or broccoli or tomatoes. It's They're broadly all the same. There, there are some exceptions to that. What you make money out of is a is a patented addictive formulation that no one else can make and the way you make the most money is you make it out of the cheapest possible ingredients and you market it as aggressively as possible to i mean increasingly to very low income settings so the US is sort of saturated now it's not possible to sell much more of this kind of food i mean the health claims are the way they do it now is they they try and sell it as healthy but the big growth is in sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, and South and Central America. Chris Van Tulliken is a physician and associate professor at University College London. I'm Mike and Scott. This is a podcast extra from The Pulse. And coming up next, can we really avoid eating ultra-processed food? It's everywhere. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. 
Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. The thing I've been wondering about since I started reading your book is, is it possible to really avoid these foods? You know, I also have in front of me a bag of almonds, which says roasted almonds on it. But then when I looked at the labels, it also has peanut and canola oil. It has whatever, sea salt, which is probably not bad. But, you know, there's cheese that I buy that is sliced cheese or any cheese comes in plastic pretty much. So no, it's it's it, 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 it's important to understand that processing and ultra processing are extremely different. So humans have to process their food. If we don't process our food, we die. We've been processing food for over a million years. It's the reason we've got, we've, compared to other animals of our size, we've got very small teeth and small jaws, short digestive tracts, because we've extended our digestive system out of our bodies into our kitchen. So we have to cook and chop and grind our food. And, and this was, a, you know, human diet was invented mainly by women working in caves and then in huts and then in kitchens. And they figured out how to do all this incredible stuff with food. And they, they made food. Uh, they made cuisines. Ultra-processed food, is what, what you get when you are making food not to nourish your friends and family, but to generate financialized growth for a pension fund. So if you're eating cheese and salted nuts, that's just processed food. There's, you know, you have peanut oil or canola oil in your kitchen and you have sea salt in your kitchen and you can have almonds in your kitchen. So they, they're not ultra processed. If you get the, um, you know, smoked flavored almonds covered in maltodextrin and flavor enhancers, then they are UPF and you will eat about three times as many of them as you do of just the, the plain salted ones. So it, is it possible to avoid? That is a social question because it is technically possible to avoid this food. I, I do, but it takes me a lot of time and money. So if I buy bread from the supermarket that has emulsifiers and palm fat and flavoring in it, it costs me about a buck and a half a loaf, maybe less than a dollar if I buy really cheap bread. Um, if I buy sourdough from my local delicatessen, it costs me six pounds, so about $10 a loaf. So it's expensive and it's inconvenient. And that's why in the book, I don't give any advice and why I don't advocate to anyone that they just try and quit this food because it will be expensive. And there are many people listening who will not be able to quit this food. You know, this one of the things the companies are doing is predating on the most disadvantaged and vulnerable people. And it's particularly hard for children. You know, if I can stop eating it myself. My children eat loads of it. It's all they're fed at school. When they go to their friends' houses, it's what they get. It's what they get at all their birthday parties, which now happen every weekend. So I don't want to give everyone a, 
a neurosis about this. It's possible for individuals to quit. We need to change the food environment. So the the book is making an argument that we are we need our governments to protect us from corporations that are really incredibly pet predatory. And it's very few corporations. I mean, that's also always interesting that it's it's been condensed into these mega companies. Yeah, I mean, there was this famous episode where I, I don't know if you follow soccer. Ronaldo, mm -hmm. one of the most arguably the the most famous soccer player in the world, um, got rid of a can of Coke at a press conference for a, for in a big after a big match, and he moved the Coca Cola and he said, "Just drink water." He said it in Portuguese, and um, it hacked four billion dollars off the Coke share price or thereabouts, kind of almost instantaneously. But what that really revealed, when you sort of looked at the data is it barely makes a dent. The Coke market cap is over 200 billion. It, it was, you know, it was barely one or 2%. And, and the share price very quickly recovered. So these are enormous companies. They're very consolidated. And part of the logic of the food system is the companies lobby for regulations that suit them and don't suit public health. So if you're growing corn... The market for cobs of corn spread with butter and salt is very limited. If you <laughs> yes. can turn your corn into high fructose corn syrup, corn oil and modified cornstarch, those have an infinite shelf life. You can ship them anywhere in the world and they, they're all used in almost every product that you buy in the store. So that's if you're growing corn, the only way to make money out of corn if you're not selling cobs is, is to produce, is to supply to the companies who produce ultra processed food. And do you see a kind of groundswell to hold the food industry as a whole more responsible in the same way? Am I an optimist? Yes. <laughs> ah, I sort of vacillate. So on the one hand, the marketing budget of any one of these companies, uh, the annual marketing budget more than doubles the entire World Health Org Organization operating budget for the entire globe. So the financial power that they have is enormous. However, we did regulate tobacco products. And kind of most importantly, we regulated them without harming the companies too much. So all the companies that make, you know, made our cigarettes and were, were, were sued in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, they still exist and their share prices are just fine. Um, we can discuss kind of why that happened. But it's possible to regulate these companies and that be compatible with lots of economic growth and, and everyone could be happy whichever either side of the political aisle you sit on. I mean, one of, one of the really important things I think to argue, because this is a fight, right? Like now I am involved in an argument with the food mm -hmm. industry that is really kind of unpleasant. And one of the things it's really important to say is if you are a sort of pro-corporate, right-leaning, hawkish person... It's really important to know, firstly, that when you regulate companies, they often grow better. Secondly, if you want a strong sports team and a strong military, you need to have soldiers and players who aren't stunted. And this food isn't just causing massive metabolic disease. It's also stunting growth very significantly. And eventually, having a, a population who is incredibly sick and unhealthy is very expensive for your economy. So I feel like, you know, the, the evidence is to regulate these companies, whether you're an economist, a political scientist, a social justice warrior, an activist, um, wherever you sit, we need to regulate this industry and, and regulate it as a matter of extreme urgency. 
you're very careful not to be prescriptive, not to tell people what to do. But I do want to ask you before we go, is there a way to at least ease your way into eating healthier, to be more mindful, to pay attention? You want me to tell people what to do? What I would say, if someone, if someone listening is struggling with this, the main thing I would say to them is that you have my, my love and my compassion and my sympathy. It really is not you. It is the food. It is not your failure of willpower. It is not weakness. You are up against a trillion-dollar industry that is trying to get you to eat every single second of every single day. So the most important thing is, is don't panic. You're living in a toxic food environment. You're not the only one affected. But the thing that has worked for me is reading the ingredients lists and seeing if I can become disgusted and then trying to create time. And maybe the, the biggest hack that I have found is I've stopped thinking about cooking as a chore and I try and think about it as a sort of human basic activity. It's like a, a thing that connects me to everyone who came before me and it's a thing I can enjoy with my kids and it's a way of relaxing. So I've, I take time for cooking and I try not to think of it as a, as a waste of time. You have kids. I have kids. I remember when I first had my son... Somebody said to me, I think it was a pediatrician, said, you know, if you just stay away from any food that is marketed toward kids, you'll be fine. I think it was easy when they were little, but as they get older, you lose control over what they eat and what they love the most on this planet is junk. You know, I can make a really nice meal and they'll be like, but where are the chicken nuggets? My kids eat a lot of this stuff. However, what... My observation, because I, I, I make a kid's show about science and medicine in the UK, so I've spent the better part of a, more than a decade telling kids about science and medicine. And we have a lot of research about this. Kids actually care about their health. Mm -hmm. They don't like being nagged. They don't like things being taken away from them. But they do want to be tall and healthy and strong. Kids who live with excess weight get bullied. Um, they, they want to be good at sport and they want their brains to work. They want to study, find studying easy and they want to do all the stuff they see online. They want to learn to juggle and do magic tricks. If you can educate them in a non-judgmental way that these foods that are being sold to them will limit their abilities and limit their growth, um, often they will take that on board. They might still, you know, indulge in the same way that you or I have probably, you know, I've tried cigarettes, I drink the odd glass of wine or bottle of beer. So, but... They will have in the back of their mind um, that they should that they should limit their intake. And also, for, there's a lot of stuff that 14-year-olds do that they stop doing when they get to 24. I think you can lay a, a foundation. So, yeah, I, uh, kids do care about their health. It's finding that way of getting through to them that isn't naggy and judgy and doesn't make them bored. That's, I mean, that's the quest for all parenting, isn't it? How to not be boring to your kids. Yes, but it's also, it's just really hard to compete with the Cocoa Puffs. You know, if, if what am I going to make, like an egg? And if they are looking at the Cocoa Puffs or the cinnamon crunch made with real cinnamon, you know, it's just, <laughs> it's just hard to compete with that explosion of flavor and texture. It's Within hard. You should feel fur Basically, you should be raging as a parent, uh, you know, as a teacher, as an educator. Like, it is infuriating that our, our, our kids are directly sold this stuff as 
good and healthy and it's a source of whole grain and it's got real things in it and it's good for you and it will make you full of energy. It's appalling. And, you know, we wouldn't, we have great, we have, you know, really good evidence this food is incredibly harmful. We've got really good evidence that the marketing works. Um, why are we not limiting this aggressive marketing to kids? I mean, yeah, you can't compete with Cocoa Pops, not really. Chris Van Tolliken is a physician and the author of Ultra Processed People, the science behind food that isn't food. You've been listening to a podcast extra from The Pulse. You can find our show every week wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Lindsay Lazarski and Nicole Curry. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR.